This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Hello, everyone. It's time for Evidence for Faith, where we explain the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hastings. And we are sponsored in part by Grace Community Church of Waterford Works, New Jersey. We have a website, evidenceforfaith.com, where you can look for previous shows. You can also find us on iTunes, so you can download those for podcasting. And if you have a smartphone, you can listen to the live stream at TuneIn Radio app. We are also heard in different parts of the United States, Albuquerque, New Mexico on KXKS, York, PA, WYYC, Omaha, Nebraska, KLNG, and in Alexandria, Louisiana, KWDF. All right. Well, Kirk, we got another letter, another email from Felipe, and I had wanted to add some additional information to my last email back to him, so I thought we'd do that first. He's been asking questions about mutations, if you recall. Right. So he says, he wrote this actually today, just a little before the show. It says... uh, or at least I, that's when I picked it up. Why are you limiting mutations to only what is defined as a point mutation? There are other types of mutations, duplication, transposons, and so far science has shown that they do not necessarily create defective parts in the genome. They also improve the survival chance of the organism, and it gives the example of bacterial resistance, human resistance to HIV. Otherwise, we would not be able to see them in the genome. So, and if you remember, his first point was about how he didn't understand how a mutation could break the gene and make it non-functional. So we explained that to him and why it's a problem, how it prevents the proteins from being produced. And and even though the the gene might make a different protein, that protein doesn't have any function because so many of the proteins that are produced or can be produced have no serve no purpose whatsoever the genes are designed to produce very specific proteins that have certain functions not just any old protein right so they're one of the things you know we found out now over the past 50 years how complex the dna is something that we are finding out over the past 10 years now is just how incredibly complex proteins are. These are not simple structures. These are not like Lego blocks. These are very, very highly complex, intricate chains of amino acids that have to be folded very precisely. Right. So I answered him and said, Uh, That's true that many jumping genes, transposons, etc., are designed features. 
They're used by the DNA, by the cell, to shuffle DNA modules and turn some on and turn some off when the organism is under stress. And this accounts for what evolutionists call rapid evolution. There was an article that came out recently about the rapid evolution of pupfish. And also in the famous bacterial experiments where they grew bacteria for 20,000 generations and yet could only come up with the ability to metabolize sugar better, these kinds of transposons were the only changes that were seen. But those are designed features. Those are designed to help the organism to survive. They're not, although we call them mutations because they're changes to the DNA, they're not really mutations. They're simply designed changes to the DNA because the organisms were designed to be able to adapt to new environments. And so when stress is put on the organism, then it adapts to its new situation. Mm-hmm. So the I continue the... The other problem with SNPs, which are single nucle- nucleic polymorphisms, that I didn't mention the last time, is that when a gene is broken, because it's encoded to produce multiple proteins, depending on how it's read, it destroys more than one protein. So this is something that the atheists continue to ignore, they, the science that has shown that DNA is multi-encoded. So you see mutations that cause apparently unrelated issues. For instance, if you look at Great Danes, they'll have problems with their eyes, and at the same time, they'll have problems with their backs. The reason is that the same genetic, the same gene, will code for different proteins that affect different parts of the body. So in that example, it'd be two or more different proteins. But it's been demonstrated that up to 32 different proteins have been shown to come from the same gene depending on how that gene is read. So another insolvable problem for a naturalistic explanation is how can DNA be multi-encoded? How can sections of the DNA code for more than one protein at the same time? Hmm. So that's our letter to, um, to Felipe. And then we got a re- I got a really interesting email that kind of is the reason for doing the topic of marriage today. It's from the Heritage Foundation. It's called the Morning Bell. They send out a an email once a day. And this was, you know, all about marriage because of the wedding of Prince William and and Kate Middleton. Right. Was so there anybody really who didn't nice- watch that? <laughs> no. Well, I didn't watch it. I didn't really either. My wife did, though. She taped it. She didn't get up at 4 a.m., but she taped it and watched it later. Okay. So I've heard that it did have a lot of Christian themes in it and talked about the Christian reason for marriage. Yes. Uh, I was hearing some of her recording as I was going in and out of the room during the day, and there was a surprising number of uh, biblical verses and references to uh, Jesus and whatever in the ceremony. I was really surprised. Mm, yeah, well, that's cool. Well, uh, it's kind of interesting, too, how so many people, I guess, I don't know, did they give a final count for how many watched this thing? Uh, I haven't heard what it is, but I'm sure it's a large number. <laughs> well, they they were predicting something like 2 billion people, so like a third of the world's population. I wouldn't be surprised. And and that is that's just amazing. One of the things that this email brings out is 
that you know, I'll just read from it because it's very well written. It says, the global euphoria highlights the enduring ideal of marriage. For all the extravagance and fanfare of a future monarch's wedding, we recognize in it some of our deepest human aspirations and the sharing nobility of the institution of marriage. Hmm. It's it says the uh, same chord was struck 30 years ago as the world watched another royal wedding. And then they quote Ted Koppel as saying, Today's marriage between Charles and Diana was a hugely magnified version of what most of us hope for, the idealized beginning of what is meant to ripen into the perfect partnership of a man and a woman. Hmm. Koppel's ABC colleague Bob Green added, The royal aspect almost was secondary. There was something universal about the ceremony of life that was taking place. The message was the same one that, that comes through at a wedding in a church recreation room in New Hampshire or a justice of the peace's office in Ohio. And mm. that is really true. There's something that really resonates with people about marriage. And we will get into some of that, the reasons for that today. It's an so ideal that a lot of people uh, hope for, but unfortunately, many people also are kind of pessimistic about uh, marriages ever working out today. So they have this dichotomy where on the one hand, they really want it, but on the other hand, they think, uh, you know, even if I get married, it probably won't work. Right. And some of that pessimism then becomes self-fulfilling. Yeah, right. So, And it not only hurts your own marriage, but it hurts other people's marriage when they hear you talking badly about your own marriage or your own prospects. Right. So society and society, we need to hold each other up and think positively, act positively, and talk positively, and that helps other people to succeed in their marriages too. Right. This email goes on, marriage is a promise, not just between one man and one woman, but to the community at large, to generations past, and to those yet to be born. Wedding vows set apart this lifelong, life-giving relationship from all others. And it says, as Heritage Senior Research Fellow Chuck Donovan writes, the simplicity of this truth accounts for the nearly universal history and expression of marriage across cultures. Despite the enormity of the pressures marriage and family face today, the vast majority of people in American society express the desire to marry, experience a lifelong, faithful relationship have children, and raise those children into adulthood where they are able to establish families of their own. Right. So the good news is that marriage still works and is still working for the vast number of people in the United States and something not to be denigrated. And of course, uh, thanks to the supermarket tabloids and those kind of newspapers, unfortunately, we hear about all the ones that don't work all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Too much. Uh, yeah, you know, I didn't prepare any statistics on actual marriage itself and what the divorce rates are and things, but I do remember seeing that even though there are high divorce rates and stuff that are publicized, a little known fact that I saw some time back is that of children who graduate from high school, okay, so roughly around 17, 18 years old, 80% of them still live with their biological parents. Hmm. So so that is very promising. So divorces are happening, but they tend to happen later after the kids are out of the house. 
Um, you know, there's a, a lot of things that that you can't can't just take that supposed 50% divorce rate and think that it's really true. Uh, yeah, it's and funny. a lot of that that comes from repeat offenders, you know, people who've been married six, seven times. The pastor of my church today, uh, interestingly enough, his sermon was on marriage today. And I asked him, is it because of the royal wedding the other day? And he said, no, I just decided I was going to speak about marriage today. I didn't even think about that. Oh. And one of the statistics he gave in his sermon was that according to polls, most divorces take place either within the first five years of a marriage or after 20 years. Yeah, yeah. So so a lot of times it's before kids or after kids. And, right, And that, yeah. I think that's a good thing. I think people see the importance of staying together, you know, for the benefit of the, of the family. Right. Let's see. So then in this email they go on to talk about some of the problems and it says the erosion of marriage and family bodes ill for the strength and stability of American society. Scholar Michael Novak famously referred to the family as the original Department of Health, Education, and Welfare huh. because, it, yeah, because of its role in providing for the needs of all its members and particularly the next generation. And we will get into some of the statistics that show that marriage is beneficial to society as a whole and to the individuals. Yes, and it really does contribute to health, education, and welfare. That's right. So they say that's why one of the most important ways that government can promote the general welfare is by upholding the institution of marriage. As Donovan recently stated in testimony on behalf of the Defense of Marriage Act, they have a quote here from him, all of the governmental interests embodied in the Defense of Marriage Act ultimately serve one overarching purpose, to create and foster conditions of public policy that reinforce the binding of men and women to one another and to the children they co-create. Study after study of the impact of marriage and the sustained presence of mothers and fathers in the home, striving together and nurturing their children, demonstrate the advantages of a married mother and father over every other family form that has been exhaustively studied to date. And they don't mention those studies, but we will get into those studies. So I have dug up many of them. So we'll we'll get into this. That should let be me, interesting. Yeah. Let me just finish up what they say in this email. Yet the shadow in the shadow of the royal wedding, a worrisome class divide on marriage is emerging that threatens to make marriage more of a fairy tale than a shared ideal. Writing in a twenty ten report. When Marriage Disappears, The Retreat from Marriage in Middle America, author W. Bradford Wilcox and Heritage's Donovan observed, Marriage is in trouble in Middle America. High rates of divorce, non-marital childbearing, and single parenthood were once problems primarily concentrated in poor communities. Now the American retreat from marriage is moving into the heart of the social order, the middle class. Hmm. What is happening today is a widening gulf between the middle class, where a sharp decline in marriage is at work, and the most educated and affluent Americans, where marriage indicators are either stable or improving. Hmm. So it turns out that the rich are benefiting from the, the benefits of marriage, and the middle class is now starting to act like the lower class and are suffering 
the problems associated with bad bad uh, marriages and high divorce rates. Yeah. So it says, uh, let me just finish this uh, last paragraph here, an understanding of the central importance of marriage and realistic expectations about it will go a long way toward making the institution more durable and pervasive across socioeconomic levels. So that's a that's really a wake-up call for us. You know, so goes marriage, so goes society as a whole. Yeah, and I There's, sincerely hope that uh, William and Kate have a long and happy marriage. Absolutely. Free absolutely. of the scandals of many of the other royal marriages of recent years. Yep. There's a good book on this subject that if people are interested in some of the studies that we'll be going over and others, it's called The Case for Marriage, Why Married People Are Happier, Healthier, and Better Off Financially, written by Linda Waite, W-A-I-T-E. So, The Case for Marriage. So, I do recommend that, especially, you know, we see a lot of the young people today that are postponing marriage and you know I guess I guess they're not getting the support that you once got in high school and college for marriage I mean people really did think that that was the next step in life was to get married it was kind of a part of the maturation process yeah and we just don't see that happening today kids are trying to hang on to their childhood and you know play video games uh, all day long, uh, you know, even after they get a college degree, you know, they'll try and get a job and then they want to, they, they think that they can hold a job down and still spend all their free time playing video games. Yeah. And not getting married, not, uh, not really growing up. Right. Yeah, there is a lot of that around today, this not growing up syndrome. <laughs> like the yep. Peter Pan syndrome, I think they call it. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's really supported a lot by the culture. You know, you see that a lot in movies. And surprisingly you know. by a lot of parents are allowing their children to live with them into their 20s and 30s and beyond. Right, right. Feminism preaches, you know, a woman doesn't need a, a man. You know, well, well, we'll see that the statistics show just the opposite, that women do need men and men do need women and children do need male and female biological parents, you know, married yeah. Now, I had recently read the book called The 5,000-Year Leap. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, I'm not. Okay, well, you, you have to read this book. The 5,000-Year Leap, it's about the Founding Fathers and the principles that they felt were the principles for good government. And it's really, really fascinating. It's just chock full of terrific quotes from our founding fathers, ones that I've never heard before a lot of times. And uh, I really, really highly recommend this. It was written about 30 years ago. And I really, really wish I had heard of this book before. I, I think it's been recently pop popularized on talk radio. And so it zoom to number one on the amazon list really um, yeah after recently. being in print for 30 years <laughs> that's right wow. that's right and who's, who's and the author of this why. book who is the author of this book i don't have the author here i'll have to i don't remember it so i'll have to uh, look it up 
I don't have the book in front of me. Okay, but so. it is on Amazon. Yes, the 5,000-year le- leap. Okay. I'm telling you, I really, really, really wish I had read this when it came out. So the reason I mention it is because they talk about marriage and what the founding fathers thought about marriage because one of the principles, and I think the total is 28, I think there are 28 principles of of freedom, principles of good government that he brings out that the founding fathers believed in. So this is the 26th principle, and it says the um, the core unit which pre, pre, which determines the strength of any, any society is the family. Therefore, the government should foster and protect its integrity. So that's uh, principle 26 from the 5,000-year leap. Mm-hmm. And they quote to Tocqueville, if, if you know who he is, he was a, a French aristocrat who visited America in the 1800s and talked about why America was such a different country, why it was booming, why it was so prosperous. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he mentioned is about the American family and how it differs from the European families. Mm-hmm. So here's a quote from Alex de Tocqueville. There is certainly no country in the world where the tie of marriage is more respected than in America or where conjugal happiness is more highly or worthily appreciated. In Europe, most all the disturbances of society arise from the irregularities of domestic life. To despise the natural bonds and legitimate pleasure of home is to contract a taste for excesses, a relentlessness of heart, and and fluctuating desires. Agitated by the tumultuous passions that frequently disturb his dwelling, the European is galled by the obedience which the legislative powers of the state exact. But when the American retires from the turmoil of public life to the bosom of his family, he finds in it the image of order and peace. There his pleasures are simple and natural, his joys are innocent and calm, and as he finds that an orderly life is the surest path to happiness, he accustoms himself easily to moderate his opinions as well as his tastes. While the European endeavors to forget his domestic troubles by agitating society, the American derives from his own home that love of order which he afterwards carries with him into public affairs. Hmm. So that's uh, Alexis de Tocqueville. Okay. Well, if you're if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks, and I'm Kirk Hastings. We're talking about marriage today and the benefits to society that marriage brings. You can also email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. Well, one of the main differences then that the founders and the the reason that American marriages were different from European is this uh, in the 5,000 year leap it says the American founders felt that the legal moral and social relationships between husband and wife were clearly established by Bible law under what 
Dr. H. Carlton Marlowe has described as differential equality. Okay? So different roles, but equal. Right. You know, uh, today feminism wants to tell women that they have to insist that they are treated exactly the same. They have to have the same roles and be exactly the same. Be, they have to be, go to combat. You know, they have to get the same exact jobs. You know, if you're not treated the same, then you're, you're treated badly. Right. And, and that's really not the way that, you know, natural law and Christianity describe the relationship between men and women. I really think it's true that um, today that a lot of times women are trying to compete not as women, but they're trying to compete as men. And to me, yeah, that's, exactly. that's, they don't. Yeah, that's self-defeating. It's like, why don't you compete as who you are instead of trying to be like the man you're trying to replace? Right. <laughs> that, that doesn't right. make sense to me. Yep. And we're going to see from a quote from Benjamin Franklin just exactly the way the Christian view is about how men and, and women interact and, and become something better, something greater than just a single individual. Right. But God, God created us different for a reason, because he wanted us to bring different things to the table, not both act exactly the same. Right, where the sum becomes uh, greater than the parts. Right. Well, this reminds me about someone that I met in this past year, a PhD, a young woman who was a PhD, I believe she was about 29 years old, and we were talking and she was lamenting the fact that she didn't have very good prospects for marriage. And so I asked her, you know, what was she looking for? And she was ta talked about, you know, she wants a moral man, a, you know, somebody who's honest and, and has good values. And I said, well, why don't you go to the church? Do you go to church? Why don't you, why don't you join a church and, and look for somebody there? And she said, oh, the, uh, the church, they're, they're misogynistic, right? They hate they, they hate, hate women. women. <laughs> yeah. And I said, what? I said, why do you think the church hates women? And she said, well, they won't let them become priests. So, oh, well, <laughs> that's yeah. a great case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's your argument. I, I'm not going to have a happy marriage. I'm not going to go looking for uh, a good husband in the church. And obviously she was Catholic because they won't let women become priests. Okay. So, so I guess that I guess means she doesn't she doesn't want to work for any company that won't let a woman become the CEO of the company either then. Apparently not. Apparently not. Which eliminates most of them. <laughs> well, a lot of them, you know, there are a lot of more women are becoming CEOs, so those those who have dedicated the time and worked their way up through the ranks are becoming CEOs, but really, you know, the way that the early Americans looked at family life this 5,000-year leap brings this out, so let me just read this paragraph. The husband and wife each have their specific rights appropriate to their role in life and otherwise share all rights in common. The role of the man is to protect and provide. The woman's role is to strengthen the family solidarity in the home and provide a wholesome environment for husband and children. For the purpose of order, the man was given the decision-making responsibilities for the family, and therefore, when he voted in political elections, he not only cast a ballot for himself, but also for his wife and children. In theory, 
God's law made man first in governing his family, but as between himself and his wife, he was merely first among equals. The Apostle Paul pointed out this in his epistle to the Corinthians, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 11, 11. Hmm. So, and one of the things I tried to share with this woman was that men and women are designed to cooperate together. They're like the right hand and left hand. You know, can you imagine how difficult it would be to pick things up like boxes and things if you had two right hands? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it would be really hard to hold things in a, and adjust things. Right. You really need a, a right hand and a left hand working together. Right. And the other thing that I described is an interesting feature about American society. And because we did value men and women equally, and yet they had different roles, do you know that America in America is the only place where ballroom dancing developed. Ballroom dancing is a uniquely American experience where a man and a woman go out on the stage and they perform together as equals, and yet one leads and one follows. Okay. Now, when I told this to her as an explanation of how two people can create beauty that they could never have created individually. I don't know if you've ever seen a dance demonstration done by a single person. Usually they're not very pretty. <laughs> well, break dancing probably. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but when a man and a woman combine together, you see something very unique and very beautiful that's created together. It becomes something more than just them by themselves. Right. And just wa she, just watching old Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movies. Some of those are incredible. Exactly. And she could not accept this. She had been so brainwashed by feminism that she thought that if the woman, because the woman was following, that she was being treated unequally and she was not the equal partner in the dance. Huh. So good luck to her in her marriage. I don't know how that's going to work out for her. I, I like that old, uh, the old saw about uh, women that say that, um, you know, talking about the ballroom dancing, they say that uh, Ginger Rogers was a better dancer than Fred Astaire because she had to do everything he was doing backwards and in high heels. There you go. Exactly right. <laughs> now, you know, nobody's saying that it's easier on the woman or something. A lot of times it is harder and they are doing harder things, more difficult things. Right. They're simply doing different things. They're right. doing things that they are better at. They're doing what co something complementary to what the man is doing. Exactly. And you the, know, the two parts come together into a whole. Yep. And I think any engineer listening to us can easily understand what this is all about. When you are engineering something, there are always give and takes. There are always things that you, aspects that you have to balance. Think about a car. When you're making a car, there are competing engineering factors that you have to take into consideration. For instance, horsepower. Mm -hmm. Okay, Horsepower is great, so it seems like the more the merrier. But what about fuel economy? Don't you also want fuel economy? Mm -hmm. And these two things, you know, they, they complement each other, but they have to be taken into consideration. And so you'll size, notice size and weight and all kinds of factors have to be considered. There's tons of things. So... 
you notice that the good engineer will create a blend of these two different factors. Mm -hmm. And that's your ideal engineering aspect. And what God has done with men and women is, you know, he's created two different types of, let's say, brains, okay? One brain, the male brain, tends to be highly focused and is really good at working on one thing at a time and not being distracted by those things around them. And then you have another type of brain, let's call it a female brain, that is good at diverse awareness, a diffuse awareness about being able to see all sorts of things simultaneously. So when a woman walks into a room, she immediately sees the dirty sock in the corner, <laughs> right? Because there's something wrong with this room. She sees it. But when a guy is walking through the room, because he's going to the other through the out the door on the other side of the room, he doesn't see anything. He just walks through the room. He just sees the door that he wants to go through. That's right. So <laughs> my wife so tells me this all the time that I can only concentrate on one thing at a time. And if I yeah. have more than one thing at a time competing for my attention, I get all balled up. And she's That's right. right. I, it does. <laughs> So one option would be to create a single type of person that's kind of a blend, but then you the problem is you're neither good at, you know, one thing or the other. Just as in a car, you know, what kinds of cars do we have? Don't we make fuel efficient cars and we also make muscle cars? Yep. Because they have different purposes and different roles. And race so, cars. So our our heavenly father, our creator, our engineer created us to combine our unique qualities and aspects, equal as they are, into a greater whole. Now, it's amazing how different the, the types of marriages were, but John Locke actually talks about this in his second essay concerning civil government. And I just finished reading this uh, a couple of months ago, uh, rereading it. It's really, I, I recommend, this is another book I recommend. But when he was talking about the term paternal authority, he says, quote, paternal authority seems so to place the power of parents over their children wholly in the father as if the mother had no share in it. Now, this is talking about an English-style marriage, an English-style family. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we consult reason or revelation, we shall find she has an equal title which may give one reason to ask whether this might not be more properly called parental power. And, and this was the kind of families that were in the early United States mm -hmm. uh, because they, they believed in the biblical view of what families should, should be like. For whatever obligation nature and the right of generation lays on children, it must certainly bind them equally to both the concurrent causes of it. And accordingly, we see the positive law of God everywhere joins them together without distinction. When it commands the obedience of children, honor they f thy father and thy mother, Exodus 20, 12. Mm -hmm. Who, whosoever curses his father or his mother, Leviticus 29. Ye shall fear every man his mother and his father, Leviticus 19, 3. Children obey your parents, Ephesians 6, 1, etc., is the style of the Old and New Testament. That's from John Locke. Hmm. Well, let's get into some of the benefits then from this type of biblical marriage. And I've got a lot here from a book called Politics According to the Bible by Wayne Grudem. 
and he talks about a lot of these studies and the benefits. So that's, uh, let me just pull up my notes here on marriage. So he uh, brings out this point that God created marriage as a lifelong union between one man and one woman, and points out that cultures across the globe have retained this teaching. So, you know, we've talked a lot about how National Geographic has used DNA to study how mankind spread across the earth from the Middle East, and the vast majority of these cultures have marriage. Sure. So, one of the things that we can do is, is look at natural law. Now, I, we can't, unfortunately, we can't get into natural law too much, but natural law was something that the founders relied on as determining right from wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's looking at nature and human beings, the way they are, how they interact, and how you can determine right and wrong just by observing the way people behave and the way they ought to behave. Mm -hmm. So natural law was the foundation for the Constitution, but also the Bible, because the Bible matches natural law. The Bible, the revelation, nat matches what's really out there in the real world. That's one of the things that makes the Scripture how we can know that it's really true is because it does match what's out there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been involved in a lot of the modern atheists, but the old atheists didn't fight against Christianity much. They didn't believe it, but they recognized that it matched natural law. And they were modernists, so they believed in truth, and they believed in the natural law. And so they supported things like the Constitution, even though they were secular and they were atheists, because they recognized that Christianity matched natural law. Mm -hmm. Today's atheists are not modernists. They're postmodernists. So they don't believe in truth. They don't believe in right and wrong. And therefore, they reject natural law. And they've, that's, ac they've accepted the uh, Eastern uh, style of thinking, which says that two contradictory points of view can both be right. Exactly. That there's two sides to every coin. There yep. isn't truth and untruth, but they're all part of the same picture. Yep. Truth for you versus truth for me. Right. So marriage being the most fundamental institution in, is, in any society, we can look at it and see that incest, adultery, and homosexuality are immoral based both on natural law and biblical law. So today, if you're a secularist, if you're an atheist, and you want to indulge in these activities, you have to ignore both the Bible and natural law. Right. I think definitely we should do a, a show on natural law, because it was so foundational to the founding of our country, and oh, it's yeah. foundational to a lot of ethics. I've read that it was uh, extremely important to the point of view, you know, up until really relatively recently, up till like a hundred or less years ago, it was the way that almost everyone looked at things. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And if you were a lawyer, you were taught natural law. Right. Well, here's an example of how natural law could be seen, and you just have to go back to the Greek philosophers. They were not influenced by the Bible, but they looked no. at nature, and they were able to deduce certain things. Here's a right. quote from 
Plato in his book Laws, when male unites with female for procreation, the pleasure experienced is held to be due to nature. But contrary to nature, when male mates with male or female with female, those guilty of such enormities were impelled by their slavery to pleasure. Mm-hmm. The, you know, one of the things that we're told these days is that homosexuality was rampant amongst the Greeks and was looked on them by on by them as normal. Well, it might have been rampant, but it really wasn't looked on as normal. It was looked on as debauched, um, but allowed by the laws. Mm-hmm. Here's a quote from Plutarch also. He calls it homosexuality contrary to nature and indecent. So it just puts the lie to what we hear today. Hmm. So Gruden goes on to say that government should reward marriage because it benefits society. Children of married parents, and, and we've got what about 10 minutes, so I think that'll be great. That'll be just enough time to go over some of these benefits that we can see in society because of marriage. Children of married parents, for one thing, there's significantly higher educational achievement. Mm-hmm. Okay, so more likely to go on to college and get advanced degrees if their their parents are married. They're also more likely to have a better economic standard. You know, again, this goes to the economic stability of of families and. Elsewhere, I've seen studies where men who are working and their wives stay home, that they make more money than men who, whose wives work hmm. outside the home. Hmm. Children are also much less likely to end up in poverty for obvious reasons, right? Married parents, one loses their job, the other one can go to work. Yeah, but if you have a single parent and that parent loses his or her job, then you're in trouble. <laughs> exactly. So it's much less safe for kids. Right. Uh, studies show that they children are have better physical and emotional health also if they are in a stable uh, family. Uh-huh. And also, he points out, far less likely to commit crimes. All yeah, right. Cons- I've heard those statistics for years that back all that up yep so they're less likely to get involved in alcohol and substance abuse children of two parents two married parents are much more likely to have higher moral standards now that's interesting I thought that was a that was a good one Mm -hmm. and that goes back to the many studies from Harvard and Yale in past years that have shown that there's a critical time during the development of children is between I believe ages two and six when they are developing their moral standards that they're gonna have for the rest of their life Hmm. and if they are not taught the difference between right and wrong during that critical developmental period they will not learn the difference between right and wrong and they wind up committing crimes Right. They end up living their life by situational ethics. Whatever benefits me, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, exactly. They don't consider right and wrong that much. Yep. And that's also the time period, the developmental time period, when boys are going through 
uh, sexual identity, when they will identify sexually with the father or identify sexually with the mother if the father is abusive to them or abandons them. Right. All right, let's see. He says they are less likely to experience physical abuse. Now, that makes a lot of sense. I know I've seen other studies about uh, abused kids, sexually abused and physically abused children. Yeah. For sexually abused children, do you know what the number one perpetrator for sexual abuse of children is? I was just going to say, I would say that it's probably a single parent with a live-in boyfriend or girlfriend. That is number two. Number yes, two, that's really? Number two. Okay, what's yeah. number one? Number one is actually other children. No kidding. Yeah. So when you know the ten-year-old uh, goes off to play with the fourteen-year-old, guess what the fourteen-year-old is doing to the ten-year-old? No kidding. Wow. Yeah, it's number one. Number the number one reason uh, or cause of of sexual abuse is other children. But um, number two is the live-in boyfriend. Okay. So when a single you mom, hear those in the news almost every day, it seems like. Yep, yep. Let's see, what's the next thing here? More likely, okay, so children in married homes are more likely to live in homes that provide protection, support, and stability. So, you know, this is kind of taking a look at it a different way. If you go into homes and you look and measure how well is the child being cared for, are they being protected, are they being supported, is this a stable home? Right. And then you look back and see what type of marriage was there, it's, if it's a married male and female, they're much more likely to provide that protection, support, and stability that children need. Uh -huh. And this was an interesting statistic too. Children of stable marriages are much more likely to establish stable families in the next generation. Well, duh. <laughs> yeah, that sort of, <laughs> of makes course, sense, gonna, doesn't it? Yeah, they're going to learn that from their parents. Exactly right. Yeah. So parents out there, do a good job in showing your kids how to have a stable, happy home environment. It's like that old saying, the best thing that a father can do for his children is to love their mother. Absolutely true. Kirk, you want to do some more of these statistics? Sure. Yeah, the next one it has here is uh, that a stable marriage provides lifelong companionship and care better than any other social institution. Very true. Better than welfare. Better than being in a homeless shelter, huh? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, okay, and another one is that the spouses have a higher economic standard and are less likely to end up in poverty. Yeah, that's right. So each spouse is better to ha is more likely to have a higher economic sta uh, standard. I don't Absolutely. think there's really, uh, statistically, there's not all that many married men and women that are probably on welfare. It's usually single parents yeah, that end up on yep, it. It is. Yep. And, you know, you have to think about, you know, for those parents out there who have children that are old enough to be dating, think about what your child is doing if your child is, say, shacking up with a boyfriend or girlfriend. They are putting your grandchildren, future possible grandchildren, at risk. Yep. If they... if that couple winds up having children, they're much more likely to get divorced, and you are much more likely never to see that grandchild again. Yeah. Or that grandchild is much more likely to have a low economic standard, end up in poverty, end up abused, end up being a criminal himself. 
So, you know, really, we got to get after people and really dissuade them from shacking up. You know, this is all reminding me of uh, my wife and I like to go to Lancaster, Pennsylvania a lot. And, of course, mm-hmm. that's Amish country where the Amish live. Yep. And it's amazing how, as you're going through these standards, I'm thinking the Amish believe in all these standards, and they have incredibly stable families. Yep. And their families go from generation to generation. They can have three or four generations of the same family living in the same house. Mm-hmm. You know, the the parents get married, they have the children, they bring the children up, and then when the children are old enough, then they get married and their parents move in with them now that they're getting older and they can't work anymore. They move in with the children and then the children take care of the parents until they pass away. Right. And you can sometimes have, you know, like I said, three or four generations living on the same farm. Yep, a very biblical concept. They just take care of each other throughout their lives. And Mm -hmm. the statistics, I'm told, as far as, like, for instance, how many Amish people are are on things like social assistance programs or welfare, almost none of them rely on that. They believe that families should take care of their own people, and that's what they do. And they get that from the Bible. Yes, they do. And they have incredibly stable, long-lasting families. They're, they're really a perfect example of what we're talking about here, about how well this works. Yep. So one of the statistics is that marriage protects women against domestic violence and abandonment. So sure. if you're married to a guy, it's, you're much less likely to suffer from domestic violence than if you're shacking up. Uh-huh. And marriage encourages men to socially beneficial pursuits. Like earning a living. (laughs) That's a socially beneficial pursuit, I would say. (laughs) Yep. Marriage provides societal encouragement of sexual faithfulness. Uh Another good thing, greater protection from sexually transmitted diseases. Yep. So all these things go to show that government, if it's going to get involved in marriage at all, which because of the importance of this, it it should. It's the only institution that can regulate marriage the way it ought to be. It needs to encourage monogamous uh, male-female marriages for the stability of society. And we can look at back at our own history and see how true this is. And like I said, we have a little time capsule here in the Amish families about how we used to raise how People in general society used to raise their own families and how well it worked. It's still working for the Amish. Yep. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And always remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.